Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Charlie, somewhere deep in interstellar space, there's a robotic probe called the Voyager. Yeah, I know about it. It's been traveling the galaxy since it was launched in 1977, and it contains a message intended for any forms of life that may encounter it. A message in the form of a golden record. I actually have a copy of this golden record. I love it so much. Wow, okay, no need to brag. (laughs) Then you know it's filled with excerpts of human language and music that's meant to represent the best of Earth. From Javanese Gamelan, to Peruvian wedding songs, to the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Oh man, what are they going to think of us? Like, what's some alien civilization discovers this golden record and we greet them with like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> are we the uh, conquering intergalactic empire? Is that what they're going to think? It's a great question because not everyone feels that Beethoven is the best representation of our species' collective achievement. For a lot of people, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony doesn't represent triumph and resilience, but elitism and exclusion. So how did this happen? How did the meaning of this symphony get so tangled over the centuries? I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And this is the fifth movement three. To understand the complicated legacy of the Fifth Symphony, we need to go back to the story, the struggle from minor to major that begins with the first notes of the symphony, and ends with a major key triumph in the fourth and final movement. You remember Frank Huang, the New York Philharmonic's violinist and concertmaster. Well, he has an explanation for why we still gravitate towards the symphony over 200 years after its composition. We all feel this daily struggle sometimes, like whether it's like uh, stress from watching your kids all day or, you know, worrying about like COVID, or whatever it is these days. But like anytime you have a small victory or something goes right, you feel this sense of, of joy. And, you know, so it's easily relatable to this minor, major, you know, once you get that connection into, into music harmonically, 
it's very easy to feel inspired by these things. That is the perfect metaphor because my toddler's stomping feet can be like a dum bum 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 <laughs> And when we successfully get him to sleep, it is a major victory. I love that, right? There's something timeless about this journey, this story of resilience. And in the decades after this piece premiered, people became kind of obsessed with this story. And they turned it from like this personal story about Beethoven's own life into this kind of collective story. Mm. I want to read something to you. This is from the diary of a New York music lover named George Templeton Strong. He listened to the New York Philharmonic play this piece in 1845. And as soon as it was over, he ran home and wrote this in his journal. What visions does it not call up of triumph and victory? the march of a conqueror of the world, the coronation, music of a universal monarch, the joy of a 10 years captive galloping fast through sunlight and green fields. Whoa, this guy is really feeling this piece. <laughs> it's a really flowery journal entry. You can hear that this symphony is becoming more than just a story of Beethoven overcoming. It's a story of anyone who listens to this, of society like coming together to to move forward, to go from minor to major, so to speak. I can almost even see the sort of strive of empire, colonialism, industrialism, all those things which have sort of that same built-in narrative of triumph and conquering. It feels very resonant with that historical era uh, of Western Europe. You're right. This piece and, and Beethoven become the soundtrack for a new bourgeois class. But hold on to that because we're going to come back to it a little later. Everyone starts to want to write like this. They want to start to write like Beethoven to express mm. their innermost emotions through abstract instrumental music, you know, to to tell stories in a language beyond that of words. Beethoven kind of becomes the patron saint of artists in the 19th century because he's innovative, because he broke all the rules like we saw, you know, dropping oboe solos wherever he pleases, expressing himself. This is not a puritanical symphony. Mm. You know, I say it lightly, but it's worth noting. It's like it's bold to express oneself. It's countercultural at that time. I can see why it's attractive to people. There's a painting from 1840 that captures Beethoven as this countercultural icon. Wait, this is beautiful. What are you seeing here, Charles? Oh my goodness. Okay, so we are in a parlor. Uh-huh. There are many it looks like inebriated men, <laughs> a few women, and they are in their fanciest coats and puffy collars. They're surrounded by drapery. And they are all encircled around a piano with one man playing. He looks totally transfixed. He's looking out the window and off in the distance on the horizon is a marbled statue of Beethoven glaring down upon all of these revelers. <laughs> it's godlike. You nailed it. I need to give a little more context here. The person sitting at the piano, mm -hmm. that's... Franz Liszt, the Hungarian composer and virtuoso. Hey, Liszt. 
he might be improvising on, you know, a theme of Beethoven, as was his want. Oh, oh interesting. It's very beautiful. I, I didn't know that Liszt had a, an electric jazz piano back in 1840. Okay. I may have taken some creative license here. And we have some other luminaries of the artist scene here. We've got Alexandre Dumas, the author of The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo. He's sitting on the left. Mm-hmm. And we've got George Sand, the, the French author who took a male pseudonym and, and dressed like a man famously. She's hanging out on the chair there. So we've got like some real uh, heavy hitters. Absolutely, yeah. And like you said, they're all kind of looking to Beethoven for inspiration. As we move into the 20th century, Beethoven's influence continues. He's used as propaganda for the Third Reich. He's like this, you know, expression of German nationalism. Huh. But he's also used by the Allied forces as a kind of code word. Really? Yeah. This fifth symphony, da 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 da. Yeah. It has an opening rhythm that corresponds to the Morse code for the letter V, da 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 dash, which stands for victory. And it's why the BBC would open all of their wartime broadcasts with the beginning of the fifth symphony, da 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 da. As a coded message that we're going to use the Germans' own favorite composer to win this war. Wow, love this. Oh my gosh, the Axis and the Allies fighting it out, trying to claim rightful ownership of this music, its meaning, its history. Right. Again, you can see the symphony is kind of what you make it. You know, you can put your own interpretation into this narrative arc. And people continue to do so in the latter half of the 20th century. And I think one of the most perfect examples of that comes from the 1970s film Saturday Night Fever, (laughs) when John Travolta walks into a nightclub to the sounds of Walter Murphy's A Fifth of Beethoven. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you put the Fifth Symphony on the Moog bass and the clavinet, it feels like it is just timeless. It's contemporary. It's new. It's fresh. I love it. And it doesn't just seep into the world of disco. Yeah. We could make a Wheel of Fortune style game where we had all these different genres and any one we spun to you could find a version of beethoven's fifth in that style <laughs> like you want beethoven's fifth salsa we've got it <laughs> you know what's cool about this version is that the main rhythmic motif the becomes subservient to these salsa rhythms, which superimpose this whole new rhythmic language onto the symphony. Yes, which is kind of similar to 
the Nigerian Afrobeat version. Ooh, that is cool. That's sort of derivative of the disco version, but it's a whole new thing. It is very similar to the disco version, yeah. Who knew that Beethoven played with polyrhythms? <laughs> Did I hear you say you wanted a bluegrass version of the Fifth Symphony? You know I love the banjo. It's not a very well-kept secret that we used to play in a bluegrass band, but there's something <laughs> about when you do a bluegrass cover of something, it just feels instantaneously like a parody. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how virtuosic that, that version was. It's beautiful. Then I'll be very curious to hear what you think about our final example, Beethoven meets heavy metal. I'm not even surprised. Metalheads love <laughs> dipping into the world of the Baroque. They love Bach. I'm not surprised that they like the Fifth Symphony, too. You know, I was thinking about what all these covers and commercials and memes about the Fifth Symphony might have in common. Hmm. And I was thinking that they all play off the seriousness of this music. They're so enjoyable because they seem to poke back at the sanctity and the kind of holiness of this mm. fifth symphony. What kind of want to say about the bluegrass? Like, would you hear it on a fiddle? Rather than like a concert master violinist playing the fifth symphony. All of a sudden, all the seriousness just turns into laughter. And that makes me want to ask, how did this happen? Like, how did Beethoven become the symbol of seriousness and solemnity and kind of everything we think about classical music today. I'm going to guess it has something to do with his eyebrows and his hair on those wild marble busts of Beethoven that you see. It just looks frazzled, like he's just he's windswept and everything is uh, a miss in his life. That's definitely part of it, but I think more so it's forces beyond Beethoven. It's hmm. the listeners who conspired to turn him into the poster boy of classical elitism. That story after the break. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. 
And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? I want to introduce someone you may have heard of. Hello, ich bin Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. You've been talking about Beethoven for like an hour and you haven't mentioned me once. <laughs> what does Wolfgang have to do with this? I asked Mozart to read us a letter to his dad, Leopold, in which he talks about the premiere of his symphony number no. 31 in Paris, because I think it tells us a lot about how classical music used to be before Beethoven. You just called up Mozart. I've got him on speed dial, NBD. <laughs> so what's the letter say? Behold, the symphony began. of the first allegro, there was a passage which I felt sure must please. The audience was quite carried away, and there was a tremendous burst of applause. But as I knew when I wrote it, what effect it would surely produce, I had introduced the passage again at the close. Shouts of de capo, de capo. Charlie, de capo means again. It's like people are yelling, play that again, right now, again. <laughs> Entschuldigung! I'm not finished. Sorry, Wolfgang. Achim. The Andante also found favor, but particularly the last Allegro, because having observed that all last as well as first allegros begin here with all the instruments playing together and generally in unison, I began mine with two violins only, followed instantly by a forte. The audience, as I expected, said, hush at the soft beginning. And when they heard the forte, began at once to clap their hands. I was so happy that as soon as the symphony was over, I went off to the Palais Royal, where I had a large ice, said Rosary, as I had bowed to do, and went home. I asked Mozart to read this letter because I think it shows us that classical music before Beethoven was more like a rock show, <laughs> right? There's people yelling. Yeah. There's people shushing each other. There's people bursting into applause in the middle of passages. 
That would get you kicked out of a concert hall today. Yes. In fact, if you go to an orchestra today, you might be required to read something called the Symphony Concert Etiquette Guide before you attend. <laughs> get out of here. Okay, what's in the etiquette guide? It tells you what kind of clothes you should wear. Jeans and tevas? Uh, they say business attire. Okay. It directs you to unwrap your lozenges ahead of time. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that was a problem. Unlike what Mozart described, it has very specific rules about clapping. It says, if you're listening to Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, which has four movements, it is appropriate to clap only after the last movement. You can look at your program book to find out how many movements a piece has. Usually there's a 15 to 30 second pause between movements. So in the case of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you know you're hearing the finale after three pauses. If you're unsure, you can wait for the rest of the audience to clap before you join in. Oh my gosh. So if you're feeling moved, wait till the end of the fourth movement. You can't have any emotive experience during this incredibly emotional roller coaster of a symphony. Yeah, you know, that last sentence of this concert etiquette guide says so much. It's like, to listen to this music, you have to know the rules and you have to behave in a certain way. The Philharmonic's percussionist, Kyle Zerna, told me that he wished the audiences gave more feedback the way they did back in Mozart's day. In a weird way, I kind of wish it was like that, typically, in an orchestra concert. Even if I felt it didn't go that well, usually we get a pretty decent applause at the end. So there's this radical shift that takes place within the concert hall. Is it because of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? That's what I'm not understanding here. I think it's that the popularity of the Fifth Symphony introduces this new way of listening. So in the decades after the premiere of the Fifth Symphony, if you went to the concert hall, you'd find that it was a vastly different space than the one that Mozart would have been used to. It was a place where they used a word called Zitzfleisch. I'm sorry, that one's not in my vocabulary. That means like sitting flesh. Oh. <laughs> and it's a weird word that describes how you are supposed to stay perfectly still in your seat. You're not supposed to tap your foot. You're not supposed to clap your hands. You're not even supposed to nod your head. You are supposed to sit in silent communion with this godlike composer. So what changed from Mozart to Beethoven? How did we get this rigid, rule-bound classical culture today? I asked our friend, the classical music critic, James Bennett, why there are so many rules when you go to see classical music. I think the best way to really think about that is the role that so-called genius plays in this discussion of elitism. It's almost as if we go to listen to this music in these quiet halls of like sanctified music. It's holy, it's almost like we're going to worship at the altars of these classical gods. And I can really not think of any other setting in which that kind of musical communion and reverence is expected. Oh, this is interesting. I like this this comparison. The fact that we're even going to buildings made by famous architects, everything about it is almost religious-like. We're bowing down to these great intellects mm. of art and music. And like in religion, there's a certain set of rituals that you have to enact when you go to the classical concert hall. They're not necessarily even obvious. 
there are all these unwritten rules where you have to go check the etiquette guide in order to follow along. Exactly. It's almost as if it's not just about appreciating the music. It's about showing whether you belong or not. Whether you know how to listen the right way. And James Bennett has some pretty strong feelings about those rules. It doesn't make any sense. I would never want to go to someone's home and be like, we're going to go listen to this music. By the way, change your clothes, you know, sit on your hands and like, don't get up to go to the bathroom. It's going to be like, you know, be easy on the drinks before. And when you have all of this stuff together, everyone acting a certain way around the music as it's expected, it's like, it seems like it's part of a club. I feel James here. I mean, I love going to see the orchestra. And yet when I do, like it throws my whole life out of order because it's the only place that I ever go that actually starts perfectly on time. And if you're like one minute late, they throw you out. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what shoes to wear. I don't know what exactly I'm supposed to, do I wear a jacket? I don't own a blazer. Do I need a blazer? <laughs> I never feel like I fit in because mm. even though I'm on my way slowly to middle age, I'm still like extremely young for this space. It feels so guarded by an older generation, and I'd never know if I even belong there. Well, just make sure you unwrap your lozenges in advance, okay? <laughs> I, I want to know when that became a problem. <laughs> I hear you, and I hear James. It's almost like there's two sides to the legacy of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You know, on one hand, it's a symbol of overcoming and resilience and inspiration. And on the other hand, it's used to create this narrative that turns classical music into a culture of exclusivity and elitism. And there might be an even kind of darker part of that story, too, in which the symphony becomes the soundtrack for a new class of self-made white men. It becomes the marker of their belonging and their individuality. And they use this symphony as a way to police who belongs to this caste and who doesn't. If you can understand this harmonic journey from C minor to C major, if you know how to behave in the concert hall, then you're welcome. And they're not so subtle about who is allowed in this symphony club and who's not. Remember at the very beginning of this episode, we heard from that New York music lover writing in his diary about how this symphony is, you know, the source of all freedom and joy and wisdom in the world. Yeah, I'm going to guess that maybe later on in his diary entry, it is not the case that this is the place for equality and every person to enjoy. This is how he would have preferred that the orchestra dealt with members of the opposite sex. Quote, All women shall be gagged by officers duly licensed for the purpose before they're allowed to enter a concert room. If that won't answer, then there shall be a sentry with a ball cartridge stationed at due intervals about the room with instructions to shoot the first female that opens her mouth. Oh my gosh. And now I think we can see that this idea of like, oh, be quiet in the concert hall. It's not just about we need to appreciate the music. It's like we need to shut up the people who we don't want to be part of this world. Hmm. Hmm. And, of course, it's not just women. Like nearly all other institutions, the symphony has been a site of outright segregation for black Americans during the Jim Crow era. And it's no surprise that black audiences continue to be excluded today, often in the name of written etiquette and unwritten cultural norms. 
These kinds of aggressions are something that James Bennett encounters as a black critic working in these spaces. Like in a recent experience he had while reviewing a classical concert. I was taking notes and during the end of the piece and we're all applauding, the guy that I'm sitting next to leans over to me and he's just kind of like, I enjoy the concert, but your writing, you're taking notes is getting on my nerves and it's disrespectful and you should, you know, be mindful of how I feel as I'm doing it. And I'm like, all right, man, like, what the, <laughs> I was like, I'll try to write quieter and keep my elbow more tucked into my side, but like, there's not much more that I can like do about it. And then the, the ensemble does an encore. I'm still taking notes, obviously. He looks over to me. He's like, I don't understand what you don't get about me telling you to stop. And then he's like, who do you work for? Do you work for the Times? I'm going to call the Times up tomorrow and tell them to fire you. And I was like, okay, great, do it. This is, this is wonderful. Um, I did not and have not ever uh, worked for the New York Times. So it was, a, it was a futile chase for him. But like, yeah, I mean, it's stuff like that. It happens like all the time. And I don't want to say it rolls off of one's back or that, you know, I don't care, but it's very revealing. James's story kind of breaks my heart here. And, you know, even though he wasn't reviewing a Beethoven concert, what he's describing here is a culture that was created by Beethoven's legacy and the legacy of this piece. And it's a culture that tries to divide and exclude even as the music itself is all about resilience and overcoming. It teaches me a lot about how the language of manners and etiquette is really often the language of exclusion. It gives permission for all kinds of aggressions and microaggressions to persist in these spaces, to push people out, to not let them have their experience. And in this specific example, I think it's particularly utterly absurd because if we're there to enjoy the genius of a work, perhaps taking notes on it is a great way to get to understand and appreciate it. Yeah, I agree. And I think that brings up a really provocative question, which is in 2020, are we still going to keep celebrating this composer? Are we going to decide that maybe it's time that we break up with Beethoven once and for all. That's next on the fourth and final movement of our series, The Fifth. Switched on Pop is made by Nate Sloan and me, Charlie Harding. We're produced by Megan Lubin, Bridget Armstrong, mixed, edited, and engineered by Brandon McFarland, social media by Abby Barr, and our executive producers are Nishat Kerwa and Liz Kelly Nelson. We're a member of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Thanks to Jen Luzo, Adam Crane, and all the members of the New York Philharmonic. And also huge thanks to our Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the actor Phoebe Neidhart. Recording of Beethoven's Fifth by the New York Philharmonic, used by permission from Decca Gold. We're posting lots of fun stuff on Beethoven, the Fifth Symphony on social media. We're at Switched On Pop on Twitter and Instagram, so chat with us there. We apologize to everybody who saw the New York Times crossword puzzle spoiler, which happened just magically to align with our series, and uh, Beethoven's Fifth was a major clue. That was bad, Charlie. I did not. I Just for the record, I did not approve of that. That was all. I'm just going <laughs> to throw you under the bus there. That's fine.
Check out the final episode of The Fifth coming out this Friday anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can catch it on our website at switchedonpop.com where you can find the whole series. So until then, thanks thanks for for listening. listening. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.